So we're joined today by Professor Ian Bateman, um, who has lots of letters after his name, but uh, wants to be known as the co-director of LEAP, which is the Land, Environment, Economics and Policy Institute. Good afternoon, uh, Ian. How are Lovely you? to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Um, well, uh, we have a number of questions. You have some interesting um, thoughts on trees and their placement. And I understand you want to um, try and impress on, upon people what's the right tree in the right place? How do you decide yes. that? So tell me a little bit about how you got into that kind of work. How do you know about trees? Oh, that really takes me back, actually. So when I was a little boy growing up in very central uh, Birmingham, right in the city centre, uh, wasn't an awful lot of trees actually around there, but my dad, uh, was a carpenter and had a great love of trees and wood and that sort of stuff. And he would take us out every weekend and we would go uh, to the Melbourne Hills or uh, to the Cambrians just uh, inside um, Wales. And it would always involve going to a woodland. And so, you know, I just thought it was totally natural to be able to walk around and say, oh yeah, that's a beech and that's an oak and oh, there's a hornbeam and all that sort of stuff. And he, I, I suppose, imbued me in me a love of nature that um, has lasted my whole life, really. Um, interestingly, I didn't go into uh, that line uh, for work and that's that's all to do with growing up in a time when there was just huge unemployment and just thinking I've got to get a job uh, walking around admiring trees doesn't sound like long-term employment so I'm, I'm going to uh, be trained in economics um, but it was a, a real joy when uh, one day somebody said uh, to me when I was on my master's, what are you interested in? And I said, oh, it's irrelevant to this. I'm really interested in trees. And he said, no, 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 you can apply economics to trees. And that really was the start of, um, well, where I end up now, really. So that, that was uh, how it all came about. Excellent. Thank you very much for that. So that, that's an interesting answer that it was really your, your father's love of trees and wanting to take yeah. you out there that got you into that. So yeah. um, I think at the moment that trees um, have a, a, a different position for different people. Some people seem to value them very highly. Mm. Uh, tell me a little bit more about the, the economics of trees. And how, you, how do you value something like a tree? Okay, so well, first of all, I, I wanna make a distinction between a value and a price because we know they're not the same thing. So if you think about the water that flows into your house through the tap, okay, you do pay for it, but nothing like the value that it actually gives you. You stop that water coming into your house and pretty soon you're moving house. <laughs> you know, we, we have a disconnect between values and, and prices. And real economics, is actually about exactly that. That's almost like the central distinction between economics and accounting. And I'm not having a go at accountants, should, you know, very essential in the world. You need to know about all the prices and all that sort of stuff. But the, a real economist is not just interested in 
prices, they're also interested in values. Now, um, trees are very uh, relevant to that because the difference between the values that trees can give you and the price that they can generate is enormous, absolutely huge. What's the price associated with trees? Well, but basically almost nothing until you cut it down, saw it up and, uh, and sell it. And then, and then there's a price and, and, and that's a valuable commodity. So there's a price that is also a value. But now think about all the other services that we get from trees. Um, let's start off with something very contemporary. They're one of the best ways to pull carbon dioxide, a major greenhouse gas, the major greenhouse gas, out of the atmosphere and store it, lock it up as carbon in, in, its, uh, in the wood itself. So they actually can uh, put a break on the speed at which we're heating up the, um, the atmosphere. And given that the rate of change of temperature is probably the fastest in the last three billion years, not million years, three billion years. You know, Earth's only been around about four point something. To, to put it in context, at the end of the Permian era, there was the biggest mass extinction ever. And why did that happen? Well, it's because the temperature went up very, very fast, went up to about five degrees, maybe six. Okay. Now, what's happening now is that we've heated the, the atmosphere by a, almost one and a half degrees. But whereas it took the Permian era 100,000 years to do that, we've managed to do about a third of that in about 100 years. And most of it's happened in, in well, my lifetime. Depends how old you are. But um, so it, the, the rate of change is unprecedented. You know, people say, oh, you know, maybe this is all a bit overblown. Not a chance. If you actually lived on a geological uh, time span, which of course we don't, you would think, oh my God, it just, the mercury just went right up through the top of the tube. So trees are fantastic for that, but there's so much else they can give us. For example, for many species, they can provide superb habitat, homes for, for wild uh, animals. And given that we are engaged in the biggest uh, slaughter of uh, wild nature, uh, well, definitely within the, the, the whole lifetime of humans, then that's a pretty useful benefit to have. Um, other things, uh, they're usually very beneficial for the water cycle, so they can clean up water that's polluted, they can regulate its flow so that the chances of flood are massively reduced if you've got uh, wooded land as opposed to bare land. Um, of course, they're great for recreation, Absolutely. That's, that's why I really got into it, um, and everything that's associated with that, uh, health, both physical and in particular mental. You know, you can say, oh, we're going outside. Uh, yeah, that's good, but you could just go, uh, you know, you could re relax on the sofa and, uh, or maybe go even go to a gym and you'd get all the physical health uh, aspects. Maybe. I think there's very good evidence that in terms of the mental 
health aspects of, um, of people's lives. Uh, wild nature can actually give us something that is extremely difficult to find in a bottle or uh, on a screen. Okay, so lots and lots of benefits, as you can see, but you can also see that these benefits, these values are not well reflected in price. Okay, big, big difference there. And the job of the economist, the real economist, is to try and bring those values where they're out of line with prices into decisions, because otherwise we just make decisions to do with prices. And unfortunately, you can see that with regard to trees, you really wouldn't be capturing anything like their value if you only looked at price. So that's, that's really one of the things that I'm very keen to actually try and do. Yeah. Ian, if, if I might pose you a question, um, obviously we're very much aware of the, the push that's going forward to bring more education just into the, the primary uh, you know, primary schools, nurseries, uh, secondary, yeah. tertiary, uh, across the board, fully yes. across the board. Yes. Do you think it would help if we had, I know we have a, uh, uh, an environment department, environmental department uh, in the government. Do you think yeah. it would help if we ha actually had ministers for trees, just actually niching down to having a minister that's responsible for the trees in this country, who could I've, drive that yeah. agenda forward to reinforce that message critical message for the knowledge which mm. I, I many of us feel uh, many environmentalists feel is sadly lacking yeah i do i completely agree um, and the problem with um uh, any institution like government that is trying to deal with multiple requirements on it because we don't just need trees we need hospitals, we need roads, we need, you know, all of those things, is that unfortunately things tend to get siloed. And the real world reality of trees is that they are part of the environmental system. And there's, uh, the, the environmental system is, is composed of connections between things, which means that if you prod one area, lots of other things happen as well, okay? So, for example, um, let's see what happens when you don't have somebody realising the multifaceted nature of trees, and instead you think uh, you have a policy, as we did for many, many years, which says uh, we, we want to produce more food. Unfortunately, and then that's a good policy, food's absolutely essential. You know, don't, don't get me wrong at all. And I'm absolutely not anti-farm. Uh, farmers, um, good, good people, often not, not getting paid terrifically for what they're doing. Um, uh, and, uh, and certainly a vast majority not having any ill intent at all, uh, as they're often portrayed. But that, um, that single-minded policy, right, we must have more food, resulted in uh, a, a very negative effects upon uh, trees, uh, hedgerows, uh, all wild areas, really. We do need somebody who's going to stand up. I mean, I, mean I, I, I like the trees one. I'd maybe even broaden it out a little bit more and say, you know, a minister for um, land, 
uh, have actually thought about the fact that we've got all these competing demands on hand and we need to think in this more, you know, it's a very trendy word, or it was <laughs> holistically, um, uh, because that's the way that the world actually is. You know, so yeah, I think that would be absolutely great. To, uh, and I'm def I'd definitely take that job. Yeah, perhaps I'd like it too. Perhaps we should try and get these conversations started in local councils. Perhaps we should actually say, pluck a minister for trees, have somebody who just is responsible for looking at the, the trees in the neighbourhood and for preserving and for, as you say, understanding the knowledge of what tree needs to go where. Trees are all great. You say, you say the same thing about clothes. I say it's cold outside. And you say, no, 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 it's not cold outside. You've just got the wrong clothes. <laughs> so it's the same with the trees. That's a great tree. Actually, that's a great tree, but it's no good putting it there because it's going to detract from everything else. Nothing else is going to grow around it because it's too thirsty. The knowledge is the key thing, isn't it, here? So perhaps starting at local levels and getting local tree mm. groups to suggest it might be a, a potential way forward. I point out councils do yeah. actually have tree officers because they're the ones that put the tree protection orders on trees. Yeah, so, no, I like it. Have a start. We, we have a starting yeah. point. That is true. <laughs> um, I, I do also like what you said about the holistic approach that is required. At Woe Forest, we too have a very holistic approach. It's not one thing isn't going to solve everything. Trees planted Absolutely in the tropics not. or planted anywhere are not the solution to everything. It's that plus people, yes. plus education, plus, plus, plus. And it's a sort of a virtuous circle of things that are required. What would you say are the top, say, three or four elements that need to be taken into a consideration when you're thinking about doing some planting? Let's just say, in, let's take Birmingham, or let's take uh, where we are here over in Sidmouth, wherever we are in the world, what are the top three things we should consider before we sink our teeth in, or, and actually get yeah. our shovels in the ground and get them in there? So um, it, it is that there's this phrase um, called the, the right tree for the right place. And um, that, uh, that phrase came about actually a, a long time ago, just after the war, war it began to get um, uh, popular. I actually think it's the wrong way around. I think you need the right place for the right tree because changing location massively changes the uh, different benefits that you'll get from a particular tree. So you can take the same tree and put it in different places and it will either generate enormous benefits or it can actually make things worse. Now, people think, well, how on earth could a tree uh, make things worse? Um, well, they can, unfortunately. If you're planting them uh, in areas, well, a real classic one is um, uh, planting trees on peatlands. Okay, that's, uh, that, that's what happened throughout the uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, uh, particularly in Scotland. Huge areas of uh, peatland were, were planted. Unfortunately, when you put trees on peatland, the natural um, uh, very high water content of that land is dried out. And the peat literally virtually dissolves into the air <laughs> it, it releases its carbon out uh, into the into the air and it releases it at, at, at a rate which is very very much higher 
than a tree can actually store carbon out of the atmosphere. So you end up generating global warming forests, the forests that actually make things worse, not better. And of course, then you've got to think about, well, what are these other benefits that we might want to get? Biodiversity? Well, what are the species that you're trying to um, uh, enhance here? Well, they obviously vary all over the place, and you've got to be thinking that there are some places which shouldn't have trees because, for example, uh, the species that um, uh, that are of importance there might be heathland species, and that they're really not going to to thrive uh, in those areas. But getting the um, uh, right place for the right tree. Um, can generate these colossal benefits, which will last uh, many, many generations. So the, the, the thing I'd look at first is the place. You know, and you say, you say the top three, and you know, I, I, I've got a lot of sympathy with that. But I suppose what I'd say is the best thing is think about how you make your decisions and think about the fact that um, the the land, the environment, varies tremendously across quite short, small areas, particularly in this country. It's an unusual country, really, because it's, it's actually quite a small uh, island, really. Um, and it's composed of very different geologies and very different elevations and stuff like that. And there isn't one solution for the whole area. We're not looking at, you know, I once spent uh, a few months working in Kansas. It doesn't matter where you are in Kansas, it's all the same. That's, that's probably, don't say that to anybody from Kansas, but you know, in relative terms, it's pretty damn similar right the way across the whole place. That's not true here. You know, um, we can, you, you can see radical change uh, across the environment of, of Britain in very short spaces of, uh, of distance. So that it, it's, it's about making, thinking about the way in which you're making decisions before you make those decisions. That's the so perhaps thing. connecting with local green groups, local growing groups, local nurseries even, to sort of see who, who who's retained that knowledge, who who knows you know, a bit about the land if you're looking at a community project uh, approach ones uh, approach, approach groups in the area to see who can offer the best advice you're absolutely right and that biodiversity is is critical but you yeah. need to go with what's going to go well there yeah i actually think we need um a sort of multi-level sort of governance on mm. this we do need government at the top taking a strategic view and, and, and realising that you can generate much greater benefits for the constrained resources that we have. Yes, we should have more resources, but that's an easy thing to, to say. Whatever resources we've got, you can make much greater use of them if you do the right things in the right areas. Then when you come down to local areas, um, and, and you've got a set of priorities um, uh, within there. The actual um, conversion of that into local uh, action, that's when you really need those sort of groups there. But I, I would also um, make a plea for the farmers as well. 
Now, there's, there's huge antagonism between conservationists and the farming uh, community. And I do think that's, that's unfortunate because, um, well, as I say, you know, many farmers, uh, they're not trying to do the wrong thing. They are trying to, um, and, and Devon's a, Devon Cornwall, where we are, a lot of them is quite small farms, really. They're not uh, the sort of barley barons that, uh, that I used to interact with a lot when I was working over or in, uh, in East Anglia. Um, they're people um, running farms that are relatively small. Uh, they're driving around in old cars that don't work very well. And they're not doing that because they enjoy waiting by the side of the road to get uh, towed anywhere. They're, 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 you know, it's a reflection of the fact that they're not particularly um, well off. And we have to slightly put ourselves in their shoes. If we want farmers to be part of the solution, they can be part of the solution and they can be a massive part of the solution because the, the, you know, the ability of local groups to control land is quite constrained. Yeah. If, you, if you say, well, we're not gonna interact with the farming community, you're immediately getting rid of about 90% of the land that isn't actually built on. Yeah. So you know, engaging with them as well can really help, but we have to put ourselves in that position saying to a farmer you shouldn't do that because it will have um, uh, major impacts on local communities or you know if you did this it would benefit local communities greatly we've got to also think what we're saying is you ought to bear all the costs of that and the people around you will generate enormous benefits from that and you know would you do that? Would I? You know, I, I think there's a limit to how much I, I, and I think most farmers do try and do the right thing, but there is a limit and we have to recognise that and, uh, and say, right, well, we will, we will try and organise things so that farmers at very least are not the ones actually paying in lost income or something like that for these benefits for, for everyone. I think so I would say that so from yeah. your points then, so the, the key three points there are, obviously you've got to have the right place. The place is critical, yeah. but it is connecting to the local communities, as you yes. say, and the farmers yes. too, and so on. What would, so your, and, and I, I, I want to hear all of your thoughts. The <laughs> final point then of the three things. So obviously, yes, what, what would your final, your final point be for consideration with just getting that right thing in the right place? Okay, uh, I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm going to first of all just slightly pad out that that location thing because you've got to think about you've got to think you know you're you're acting on this environmental system and you know the word system what on earth do I mean by that I mean something where you prod one side of it and another side bulges out. And it will always do that because that's the nature of, of the beast. Uh, you know, you, you change uh, land use here, it changes water quality yeah. there. You know, I mean, you've got to bring that into, into your uh, decision making. Um, I suppose the other thing which is perhaps um, a, 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 maybe a little esoteric is, is uh, <laughs> what is good? What are we actually aiming for here? You know, um, until we have some sort of notion of that, it's rather difficult to make 
any sort of decisions because if you don't know where you're aiming for mm. how do you know that your decision here is even setting off on, on the right path so trying to get some sort of agreement about what's good <laughs> would be a really good idea lovely third point thank you very much for you're very welcome <laughs> The, the what is good has been brought to the fore in in Ireland, where there have been vast plantations of Sitka spruce planted. Mm. But, um, mm. The people who mm. want to make money from the wood think is brilliant. Yes, but the people yes. who are living there think is not a good idea. Um, Absolutely, and, and, and so Sitka spruce is is a, 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 such a divisive tree, you know. Mm. Um, so let me first of all force myself to make the case for six fruits, which I admit I find difficult. <laughs> um, um, it grows really fast. It loves being over here, you know, particularly in a place like Ireland, which is, um, you know, you're, you're taking a species which naturally lives um, on the west coast of uh, North USA and, 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 and Southern Canada, uh, right over towards British Columbia, that sort of stuff. And so it comes here and it goes, oh, this is fantastic because it's still fairly wet. You know, it's not bad, particularly in the West and uh, of this country and, um, and, uh, and Ireland, but it's loads warmer by comparison. Mm. And, you know, basically we all love a bit of warmth <laughs> and we all feel ourselves growing <laughs> in the warmth and that's exactly what Sika Spruce does. So it grows like, um, very fast. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, don't, I don't know what age group you're, you're, you're appealing to, so I'll just say it grows very, very fast. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and, and of course, it produces timber and, and, and that's a useful crop. Okay. Now, the case against it virtually everything else. <laughs> so many other things. I mean, it's, it, I've heard ecologists try and make cases for the biodiversity benefits of Sitka spruce, but really uh, they're scrabbling, <laughs> to be honest. You know, it's not very conducive to um, a lot of the species that, that, that live here. Um, it's, I think the politest thing you can say about how it looks is um, uh, when it's young, it's absolutely impenetrable. And you can't walk through a young Sitka spruce plantation because it's just like this in, in front of your face. Um, the, the, the older ones, you know, you know, it's got a limited range of species uh, around it and they're big and they're looming and I wouldn't want to live next door to a big uh, six spruce plantation. So I, I greatly sympathise with that. I suppose it's coming back though to my point about, um, you know, how do we get um, people that uh, own land, you know, so I'm not, I'm not going to advocate the end of uh, capitalism and private property or, or anything like that, because I just don't believe that's going to happen. So accepting that people are going to carry on owning land and therefore within reason be allowed to do what they uh, want with it, um, which you might contest, um, then we have to think about ways of uh, inducing them not to. And there's a, then there's a few, well, there's two basic ways that you can do that. One is you can try and regulate and you can say, um, 
I'm sorry, but you'll you can't put your Siri drinks of um, incredibly fast growing uh, Sitka spruce within, you know, two, three hundred yards of of people's communities because it's mm. not very pleasant. Yeah. Or the other one, and it could be a combination too, is, is basically some sort of insective. And you say, right, you plant Sitka spruce, that's your own lookout. But you plant these species and we'll give you a subsidy for it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, on the species um, topic, um, there are a lot of people have said to me over the years, you should only plant absolutely native species in Kenya. And that would be all very well, apart from the fact that with the temperature rise and droughts, that yeah. happening, the native yeah. species are no longer quite as good at surviving. So do you think we should be looking at the right species based on the expected environment? Yes, absolutely. I'm afraid we have to. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I get great fun out of uh, watching ecologists fight with each other about what is native. Mm. And, yeah. uh, you know, and, and, uh, and people are saying, that's not native. The Romans brought it in. And I'm thinking, hmm, that's quite a while ago, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, the, mango um, the mango tree is case in point with that, because they'll say, you know, I've heard people say, well, mango tree, that's not from here originally. It's been there for hundreds of years, however. And the mango tree seems to thrive in really arid conditions. So yeah. all the years where it's been really, really dry, when the drought has been just gripping in a death-like yeah. yeah. grip, um, the flower comes out on the mango tree. You actually get flowers when it's at its absolute worst and driest. And then this wonderful um, uh, array of fruit. So mm -hmm. it's, it's well conditioned to being there, but critically it feeds people. It puts food in, in people's tummies mm -hmm. and it's a commodity to sell. So I think yeah. it's earned its place in the, in yeah. the fabric of Kenya for, for growing, really. But it is an interesting argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, so over here, you know, there, there are I've seen people come up with lists of what is native and what isn't native. And it's very interesting, um, you know, how those lists change uh, between uh, people. Um, with regard to your point, though, in particular, Simon, um, the world, very sadly, is changing at this phenomenal rate of speed. You know, um, and, and the very fact that people of my age can detect some difference from when they were children yeah. is bonkers, absolutely bonkers. You think how short a human lifespan is compared to geological periods. None of us should ever be able to tell a change across our lifetime because we just don't live long enough for, for natural rates of change to be at all discernible. And yet we, we are altering the world so fast that, that that is no longer true. Very, very scary. What is gonna happen is that um, species, uh, and I don't know what you'll think about this, but species like Sitka spruce, which um, uh, for anybody who's not uh, familiar with that, by the way, um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a conifer, uh, as I say, you know, comes from uh, coastal um, North America, um, grows like a weed, um, very fast, um, very dark um, uh, foliage very straight uh, as well and so it, it is good for wood but not good for, for native species anyway 
it's been the number one species of choice for commercial timber production for a long time because of its uh, amazing ability to grow um, uh, fast. But it's grown here, as I say, as I said, um, because it's a bit warmer than it normally experiences and it likes that, providing it keeps getting enough rainfall. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, that is beginning to change for the six spruce. And areas of, in particular, southeast England and spreading, if you can almost imagine a sort of, you've got the map of, uh, of Britain and you can almost imagine a diagonal across it, slowly <laughs> moving from the southeast of England across, sorry, I'm trying to do it this way for you, <laughs> uh, um, uh, towards Wales and Scotland, that sort of stuff. And, and it's literally pushing um, dry, summers ahead of itself and there is the limit to how much a tree like Sitka spruce can, can take that you know and so it's almost like climate change is pushing the Sitka spruce off the island into the Irish Sea. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, so the rate of growth that we have seen for Sitka spruce over the last century will not be the rate of growth that we see in the future. And interestingly, this um, means that other species, which actually would like it a bit uh, both warmer and are perfectly happy about it getting a bit drier, so for example, continental oak, will actually follow that wave. And actually, um, you know, uh, if, if there was no humans around, it would, it would be following the, um, uh, the Sitka spruce towards the... Um, uh, towards the ocean. Um, so we have to plan for that. There is no point planting trees with one of the main objectives being to remove greenhouse gases, carbon, from the atmosphere and then finding out that in 30 years time they're all dead because it's too droughty for them. Yeah. So we have to plant with that in mind. Uh, that means that you know, we, we have to also accept that the future, that with regard to time, the only thing that's certain is, is what happened in the past. You know, we can tell you exactly what happened every day. In the future, the future is uncertain. And we don't know whether it's going to get very dry or a bit dry, that sort of stuff, which means that we have to take an approach to um, planting trees, which has a, an appalling economic term uh, associated with it. It's called a portfolio approach. Yes. So mm -hmm. a portfolio is normally considered a, a, as, as um, a set of investments. You know, oh, I'm going to put some of my money into very safe things that don't grow very well, but, you know, I, I know it will be there and I'll, 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 uh, I'll put some of it on the horses at Cheltenham and, and, and whatever, you know. And we have to... Um, take that sort of reality which is ahead of us and make decisions with that in mind we could play ultra safe okay but if you do that you might end up um, missing some real opportunities for, for positive change so what will probably the best approach is 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 this mixed for portfolio approach where you say well 
if if climate change is going to be really bad, then you know the, these sort of species they'll be able to to cope with it. If it's not quite as bad as it could be, then these species will, for example, uh, give us better consequences for water quality or biodiversity or stuff like that. So it's 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 an amazingly exciting but quite challenging. Um, uh, question to answer when people say, well, what's the, what's the right place for the right tree?